Good evening and welcome to the NFL Draft. Tonight, we officially welcome the next generation of players. So if you're ready, are you ready? Let's get it started. The NFL Draft is officially open. Good morning, Argentina. <laughs> I, was wondering, I was like, we can't say good morning football. I'm positive that's copyrighted. Hello from your friends at Locked On NFL Draft, the 28th highest rated football podcast in the country of Argentina. Just wanted to give a big shout out. Just wanted to give a big shout out to our listeners down in Argentina. But welcome inside the Locked On NFL Draft Podcast. I am Trevor Sikama. With me is Benjamin Solak. This episode of the podcast is not only brought to you by the fine listeners down in Argentina, but also NFL Game Pass. And it is fitting that this episode of the podcast is brought to you by Game Pass because it is Watchers Wednesday, where Ben, myself, and all of you, the people... Take a look at some of the takes that you have had from looking over the broadcast and all 22 film from the past couple of weeks. We try to keep it as relevant as possible, but this is a new thing that we're doing. Ben and I are going to have our couple of film topics that we've really got a chance to dive into over the last couple of days since Sunday and Monday. We're going to give you our in-depth takes on some guys that we really put under the microscope. But we are also opening up the second half of the show to you guys. And y'all sent us a lot of your film takes uh, some in audio format, some of them was just written, and we're going to get to all of those and allow you to get in on this Watchers Wednesday format. I'm very excited about it. Y'all love when we get even more in-depth on some of these players. So Ben's first one, but I'm excited about it, man. I think that this is going to be a good little format. Ben, first one? You mean, oh, just one. I understand what you were saying now. Okay. Uh, no, I was, I was kind of just like, leaving it up for you to respond you and continue the conversation. Yes. I was very yeah. confused. No, yeah, we were, that's kind of like how the show works. Like normally, you know, like I'll intro the show a little bit. I'll, you know, tell people who we are. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm Trevor, you're Ben. And then normally I'll say a couple of words, do maybe something a little witty. And then I'll give you like the toss. I'll give you like a little toss and then you kind of keep talking. <laughs> I was just confused because it was a very quick toss. <laughs> and usually your tosses involve a lot more tossing like uh like ronnie bass like i've just got the elongated toss right yeah no it's big it, it's the whole bucket step it's the two-handed little yeah. thing yeah yeah that's what i was looking for side right. note teddy bridgewater did a little like toss to christian mccaffrey for their touchdown this past pass, weekend maybe. and it was like a straight chest pass it was funny all right so okay there there even though we kind of like fumbled the toss a little bit we still got the completion off you've got the ball you're headed into the end zone who do you want to talk about? Who do you want to kick off this Watchers Wednesday podcast with? Guys that you watched over the weekend. I think we should start. We should start with Justin Herbert because one of the best. I think one of the best things about the new NFL season is that you know we talked about Justin Herbert ad nauseum for the course of a calendar year. Only like you know 10, 11, 12 new games of Pac-12 film to really discuss. We we spent the winter and the spring talking about Justin Herbert with absolutely zero new games to discuss, and now we get finally some more herbert data some more data points in terms of his first start with the chargers to talk largely about that which we were trying to prognosticate which was his projection to the league and how he would play uh herbert gets thrust into the start in week two against the chiefs as we now know uh because tyrod taylor's pre-game injury was the result of a doctor 
trying to give him a painkilling injection and puncturing his lungs. Like so, Doctor Strange? Oh, we're using our fake names. Okay, then I'm Spider-Man. That's fine. Uh, so, 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 you know, not, not suboptimal uh, in terms of medical treatment for, the, for Tyrod. Justin Herbert ends up the starter, and the Chargers really cater to what Herbert does well. They came out there. They ran multiple plays out of the pistol. They threw. Uh, they ran option routes. They had. Excuse me. They ran option in the backfield. Uh, with, with with the with the back behind Herbert. They ran a ton of of play action looks, both from under center and from in the gun and from in the pistol. They allowed him to work outside of the pocket, designed getting him on the move where he's going to be at his best. They gave him half field reads so he doesn't have to reset his feet across the formation, which is an issue of his. And Herbert delivered. Uh, it's interesting because Anthony Lynn has talked a lot. In, in the wake of Herbert's performance, which, you know, was inarguably a good performance about starting Tyrod Taylor once he's healthy again. And one of the things that he said is there's like a reason that Herbert was a backup and there's stuff that we want to do on offense that we can't yet do with Herbert in there. I'm not entirely sure what those things are because the offense that you put on the field with Herbert's a good looking offense, RPOs, play action, moving the quarterback set point. I mean, this is a lot of what we, want offense to look like in the NFL for pretty much everybody. Uh, so I'm not sure what was lacking scheme-wise that Lynn wants to accomplish. But what you had from Herbert's performance was, yeah, a dumb pick where he's under pressure, he's outside of the pocket, he's staring directly at a middle-of-the-field safety, throws the ball super late across, the not across the formation, but into where the defense is flowing, and the closing corner grabs it. That's just a dumb one. He had a... a it easy misses outside of the numbers. I mean, it's like it just stupid, dumb, classic Herbert stuff. But there was far less of that than there usually was mm-hmm. with Herbert in Oregon. You it's could great. put a great bet on Herbert in Oregon dropping five, six passes in just nonsense places. Versus I thought he had like two, maybe three really poor throws against Kansas City. And then when you look at some of the really higher graded throws, especially that wicked third down shot to Keenan Allen. I mean, it does not get better than that throw like that. Like I, I brought it up, I think on this podcast, Burrow ain't made a throw like that. You know what I mean? Two is not playing. He hasn't made a throw like that. I don't think they made the throws like that in college. Like that's just ridiculous arm talent. So Herbert to me, in terms of accuracy, decision-making was about as good as you could have hoped for a quarterback who had his profile at Oregon. I thought running ability, pocket management, escape ability were better than you could have hoped for what he put out on Oregon. Like to me, this was a full deliver on on what you were looking for out of your rookie quarterback. Surprised that they're not continuing to play him. But I think the most impressive thing on the film review was how they were able to cater the offense to his strengths, get him in situations with which he was familiar, given his time at, at, at Oregon, given what they ran there. And that comfort allowed him to come out, play confident, play calm, play cool, play collected, and you know put a decent amount of points on the board. No, it's and that's that's great to hear. You never know what's going to happen when you throw a rookie quarterback out there. And I, shoot, maybe it's maybe it's good. I know we talked about this a little bit when we recapped things on Monday, but maybe it's good that he figured out he was the starter like ten seconds before the game. There's no overthinking to be had. You're not sitting up all night thinking about the plays that you got to memorize and the ones you got to hit and envision and things like that. You're just going out and doing it. And I know you said before that Justin Herbert's not really a gamer, so that's not really in his blood. But perhaps it was uh, it was good that they were able to really just get him out there and he could just 
play relaxed. Like there, there was no stress to be had because he didn't have enough time to to think about the stresses. So it was great to see him play well. It always is with that that young talent. I'm very interested to see. You know, as we get a couple of more weeks in with Herbert or even when Tyrod Taylor is going to come back, what Lynn is exactly talking about. Like, I, I just wonder, w- right. was that line kind of BS? You know, we, we know now that <laughs> Tyrod's injury was at the hands of an employee of the franchise. So if Anthony Lynn were to come out and say, yeah, Tyrod's hurt, Justin was great, he's our starting quarterback now, that's not really a good look seeing as how your own employee is the one who injured him. And I think that there's a good chance that Tyrod might uh, have a legal case on his hands. Although somebody pointed out to me in my mentions, I believe it was a former player who said like, normally you have to sign some sort of kind of like waiver anytime that anybody is doing anything like invasive in your body, even if it's a team doctor. So I don't really know all the, the, the legality that goes into that, but I do get why Anthony Lynn was probably more adamant than it seemed like he needed to be with continuing to say that Tyrod had the job when he got back. Now we know it's because of how Tyrod actually got injured. But yeah, I'm mm-hmm. I'm very interested to see what those things were on offense, if they really existed at all, because it seemed like it seemed like Justin Herbert had them rolling in the right direction. Really did. Yeah, it's it's I don't know. Rookie quarterback development is a tricky thing. And as always, sure. you know, like to me, should you sit him, should you start him? It depends on the player, depends on your offense, depends on the context. Evaluate everything, make a decision and go. So I understand that they're like, we want to sit Herbert. And then in week two, they got to play him. And they play him, and they're like, well, our plan has always been to sit him. But it is tough to argue with what he just did. Yeah. And if, if given my personal evaluation on Herbert, a player who I've, I liked, but not that much, to see what he did against the Chiefs, which is a decent defense, I would want to reinforce that positively by having him continue to play. Well, <laughs> yeah, it, it seems like he might be playing a while. Right. I mean, yeah, he, he's definitely in for week three. And it's tricky because the last thing you want is for him to be bad and then you pull him. So, like, if you start him because of how well he played, you're on that train for the rest of the year. Right. And I understand why that could be difficult. And if you're, as a, as a Chargers coaching staff, Anthony Lynn, thinking to myself, I've got to put out a decent winning season in order to keep my job, then mm-hmm. I understand why you want to give yourself Tyrod Taylor for the rest of the year. But that's that young man right there is the future. And uh no, keep going. I, I didn't mean to cut you off. No, yeah, that that's the future, and you want to do everything you can to make sure he's as successful as possible. To me, that means playing him after this. I'll stick with the quarterback train. Uh, two weeks ago, well, actually just a week and a couple of days ago, uh, Bills, Buffalo Bills quarterback, who has been criticized widely throughout his first two seasons in the Nathan NFL. Nathan Peterman. He had a rollout pass against the New York Jets in week one in which he absolutely cannoned the ball over a wide-open wide receiver in the back of the end zone. Now, this didn't exactly come back to hurt the team. The game was already had. The Bills controlled it the entire time. The Jets are god-awful. But I clipped this because I was watching Red Zone. I wasn't even watching the Bills game. I was just watching Red Zone. They showed this play. I clipped it on my computer, and I just put it up there, and I just said two words, Josh Allen. That's it. And I think I I put a face emoji in there with it because it was not a good throw. Bills fans flooded my mentions with, 
oh, like, of all the good throws he had in the game, you pick this one. You clearly didn't watch the game. And a lot of them cited his stat line to me and everything like that. And I didn't even say, like, wow, look at Josh Allen being trash like he always has been. I would just said Josh Allen. And... So I knew that I wanted to go back and I wanted to watch some of the things that Josh Allen was doing well because there were a lot of Bills fans too, even though it was the guy on their team, there was a good amount of people were saying like, hey, he's improved. He's better than just this punchline that the NFL and NFL media has made him out to be of people who don't really watch every single game he plays. So again, has a fantastic game against the Miami Dolphins. And I went back and I looked at all of his deep throws. So throws of over 20 yards or more in both the Jets game and the Dolphins game. And I got to tell you guys, for this being the biggest area of criticism with Allen, because look, why do you draft a guy like Josh Allen in the top 10? It's certainly not because of his natural accuracy. He never had more than 50% completion percentage in either of the two years that he was a starter at Wyoming. So you're Wait, not- you never had more than 50? 57. Okay. I so it, 50 it, and I was like, that's no, crazy. No, it was like 56 and then like 56.7 or something. He, he never mm-hmm. had a higher than 57% completion percentage in college. Uh, which is bad. And then he follows it up in his first two years in the NFL, and he doesn't have more than 60, which is is still not good. The reason why you draft a guy like that in the top 10 is because of his arm strength. Well, why do you draft a guy like that? Why do you draft a guy for his arm strength? Well, you do that because you want to open up the whole field. You want the defense to have to cover basically all the green grass that they can because you want to be able to attack it in every single window in every single area. Allen hasn't been able to put the ball on the money deep down the field. So that arm has basically been not what you drafted it to be. And that was a high price to draft a guy uh, with that big of an arm. This year, it's different. This year, he has been pinpoint. I believe he was seven for nine over the last two weeks of passes beyond 20 yards, over 200 yards. He has a 70% completion percentage through his first two games. And I mentioned this in the film breakdown that I did over at the Draft Network. Yeah, he played the Jets and the Dolphins. They're not very good. They're two of the worst teams in the NFL. But you got to give credit where credit's due. The Dolphins played a lot of single high man coverage against him, as did the New York Jets. And when they did, Josh Allen and Brian Dabble, the offensive coordinator there in Buffalo, they dialed up a lot of play action, deep crossers, whether it was with uh, John Brown or Cole Beasley or especially Stephon Diggs, and it was working. They were getting these guys deep on these horizontal routes across the line of scrimmage, and Allen was putting it right on the money over the defenders that they were already behind on these speedy wide receivers. And so... Allen, I thought, did a really, really nice job of hitting the deep ball against these early two teams. And I wanted to point that out, and I wanted to give him some praise. Now, it's against that man coverage that the speedy Buffalo Bills receivers are going to have the advantage against. Mm-hmm. I am waiting to see what Josh Allen will now be like when teams go zone heavy and try to really describe— di- not describe, disguise some added pressure on the pocket. So you're getting blitzes from different angles, pressure's coming at different points, and yet guys are able to keep their eyes on Josh Allen and where he's going in zone coverage. That's going to be the next big test of him, especially when it comes to attacking with that deep ball. Because in man coverage, I think he passed his first two tests, certainly with flying colors. He's he's leading the, the league in passing yards right now two weeks in. But We got to wait and see what he's like against better defenses and better teams. However, I do have to say that after really putting Josh Allen's deep ball under the microscope, I was very pleased by what we saw early on in 2020. Yeah, the, you know, Josh Allen's terrible at a deep ball thing was always like, okay, yeah, he's he's not a great passer. Accuracy, not, not the strength. There's a lot of ways to survive as a passer in the league. Right. It's, you know, like, I think that 
and I, something I've been thinking about a lot recently with Carson Wentz, who we're going to talk about later. You know, you can be inaccurate as long as your depth of target is aggressive and you're pushing the ball down the field and you're generating chunk gains both as a passer and as a runner. Mm-hmm. Allen wasn't an accurate deep ball passer, but you have to continue to play through that and you have to continue to push the ball deep because Allen's never going to be a nickel and dime passer, right? And so deep passing, which is extremely volatile, was something that, yeah, like statistically he was not good at last year. Uh, worth noting that he also probably was attempting deep passes that very few other quarterbacks in the league would attempt. And those attempts are not very high percentage attempts because of the nature of his aggressiveness, because of the nature of his play style, which you can talk about his decision-making being a weakness, and I'll hear you on that one. But I'm not sure like to what degree that affects uh, his deep ball accuracy. All of this to say, like Allen was a really bad deep ball passer last year. But we have to acknowledge that... like. Uh, deep ball passing is very like all over the place that there's a it's a first it's a very wide range of the field like Mm -hmm. 20 plus yards 30 plus yards it's a lot of different style of throws that go there number one number two numbers are going to regress i mean they're going to pop back to the mean they're going to drop down to the mean like it's going to be all over the place i don't think Allen is a 70 percent deep ball pass i don't think he's a 20 percent deep ball passer he's probably just about somewhere in the middle league average and he's attempting passes he shouldn't attempt and that kind of muddies the numbers a little bit but the moral of the story is Bills have to keep pushing the ball down the field with Allen. Yeah. Because you're not going to be able to nickel and dime with him. And they knew that. And so they put together a great offensive line, run a ton of play action, and got a great deep ball receiver in Stephon Diggs. There you go. I, I think he, Diggs is going to be huge for them. Just just watching I saw, what yeah. I saw over these last two weeks, I mean, Diggs is the perfect receiver that they needed to add for what they wanted to do. I um, I saw a, a, a tweet today. Uh I can't remember from whom it was, but the Vikings receivers. Probably from me. If it was, was, Vikings, it, was it a good tweet? Yes. Then it was probably it was from me. Yeah, it was, it was probably from me. From me. I think no, it was Eric Eager. I think PFF. I know which one you're talking about, and I think it was from me. I'm pretty sure it was me. Uh, I think it was Eric Eager from PFF. Um, but somebody said, Stephon Diggs so far this year has like 300 receiving yards. He's got like 18 catches, and he's got a touchdown. He's got three contested catches. And the Vikings receiving core as a whole has pretty much the exact same numbers. Yeah. Right? Like all together. Right. Like <laughs> yeah. 300 receiving yards, one, like two touchdowns, one contested catch. I think like Stefan Diggs is the whole Vikings team in terms of his production right now. It, it, it's a good ball player. No, he is. He's, I mean, he's awesome. He's fantastic. Before we get to the next guys that we're taking a look at, and before we get to some of the film notes that you guys have had. As I said, it was very fitting that this is is brought to you by Game Pass. This season, get NFL football on your time with Game Pass. You guys can catch every snap from every game with full replays, including getting in on this Watchers Wednesday show. You can see all of the plays in just 45 minutes with condensed games. You can relive all the gutsy calls, the crazy catches, the wild comebacks, the breakout stars from every single game every week. It's all the action and the football you could possibly handle in one place. And... NFL Game Pass is also the only place where you can replay every game all season long. You'll also learn from the league's best players with over 40, count them, NFL Game Pass film session episodes. Go inside the game from the player's perspective as they break down their own tape, concepts, technique, all that kinds of stuff. You got guys like Deshaun Watson, Stephon Gilmore, Devontae Adams, so many more players that you can learn from. NFL Game Pass also provides the entire NFL Films archive, so you can go back and watch a lot of those vintage shows and documentaries that you love. Go to NFL.com slash Game Pass to start your free trial today. NFL Game Pass, where football never stops. Ben, who's next for you? 
You remember watching Wyatt Taylor out of Virginia Tech? 2017? Large NFL young draft? man. Large young man. Wyatt Taylor is one of the angriest prospects I've ever watched. I, I like Wyatt Taylor was, I think, one of the, the first prospects, like 2018. So I was probably doing this for about like a year. Really, like, you know, like 2017 is my first like real year on it. So I remember watching Wyatt Taylor and just being like, this man is hurt. Like he's he's somebody upset him a long time ago, and he's just not <laughs> giving up on he's it. Just, that, he's like, just listening to like sad music in the yeah. Like he it, just it, he just wants everybody. Why why Teller's pregame music is just Evanescence bangers on repeat. That's it. He it, just he like, just sits there with the towel over his head. It's like the Punisher on Netflix, man. Like it's just he just he did he he was sad. Like his family died, and he was pissed about that, and then. He was just going to stay pissed about that for two seasons and be played really well by Joe. I forget how to pronounce his last name. But anyway, um, Teller out of Virginia Tech, fifth round pick, goes to Buffalo, gets traded to Cleveland, which brings me to my second unit, second all all 22 watchers Wednesday I'd like to bring up, which is the Cleveland offensive line, and namely what Kevin Stefanski is asking the Cleveland offensive line to do. We know Kevin Stefanski exclusively from Minnesota, and this was an interesting part about Stefanski's hire right and him becoming a head coach in Cleveland he was the assistant to the head coach in Minnesota in 2006 to 2008 assistant quarterbacks coach 2009 to 2013 tight ends coach from 2014 to 2015 running backs coach 2016 quarterbacks coach 2017 2018 interim offensive coordinator 2018 offensive coordinator 2019 all in Minnesota he had every job on offense besides wide receivers coach all in Minnesota and he didn't actually ever coach offensive line but everybody knew him as a running game guy. Uh, Gary Kubiak gets involved in that offensive room in 2019. Uh, Stefanski learns a lot from him, uses a lot of the vernacular that he used. And then he ends up in Cleveland, and it was, okay, what's Stefanski going to do? Probably that which Kubiak did, probably that which we saw in Minnesota last year. ton of zone running, ton of play action off of zone. Well, he ends up in Cleveland, and there's been a lot of zone running. There hasn't been enough play action out of zone, but... What you're really noticing is that he's a very multiple run game designer. He is not a Shanahan McVay. And, and McVay is also you know, becoming more multiple. Shanahan's been becoming more multiple. So maybe this is just proof of concept that you can't just sit in zone every single down. People will know how to, how to combat it. But Stefanski's pulling these guys. Stefanski's moving dudes off the ball. When you look at who he's got on the offensive line, it makes sense. They are starting Wyatt Teller at right guard. Teller can move okay. But you don't really want him taking zone bucket steps, walling guys off, you know, flipping his hips, torso, whatever, trying to control leverage point. You want Wyatt Teller hitting dudes with intensity, hitting dudes with bad intention, and wrenching them out of gaps. Chris Hubbard is playing at right tackle. or uh, Yeah, playing at right tackle right now, right next to Wyatt Teller because uh, Jack Conklin's not available in the beginning of the season. Chris Hubbard, who was starting for them last year, was kind of decent, not great. They wanted to improve upon him. They bring in Conklin. They draft Jedrick Wills. Hubbard looks like a true starter. This is their sixth offensive lineman. Why? Because they're letting Chris Hubbard come off the ball and be angry. The offensive linemen always want to be the aggressors. They always want to be playing at velocity on straight lines. And the amount of power, counter, gap-style runs that you're seeing from Cleveland is, to me, an indication, one, of Stefanski's ability and willingness to adjust his offense based off of the strengths, and number two, an acknowledgement that his offensive line, while it is still being retooled and it's got, you know, good zone guys, J.C. Treader, Joel Batonio, has its strength right now in people moving, power, Gap runs. And that's what they're doing. And guess what? With Nick Chubb, 
I mean, it, nothing. there's nothing Nick Chubb can't run, but gap power is great because you're getting 228 pounds moving downhill. Sure. And Nick Chubb's got such a springy jump cut that he's able to, to, he's, to work he's a freak, these gaps. Man. He's a yeah, freak. Yeah, he's so good. So he's able to work these gaps to be able to set up these blocks for these linebackers. Now, listen, Cincinnati's run defense, about as pitiful as it gets, those linebackers are playing scared for four hey, quarters. Man. Hey, hey, 50. hey, hey, hey. They're trying. Man. They're trying. Nah. Some of them were. 57 wasn't. Uh, who's 57? Fi- who's 57? Who's 57? Jermaine Pratt. Oh, wow. Jermaine Pratt. They're Nick Chubb's first touchdown run. Uh, it's Janovich. It's a fullback. Andy Janovich is coming into the hole. Oh, is this the one that you clipped on Twitter where he basically yeah, blocked him off the screen? 57 season and just keeps on moving. 57 is, is scraping into the gap. Sees Janovich coming for him and just keeps on scraping out of the gap. No, nah, I'm not doing this. You're <laughs> about to get lit up. Didn't want a piece of it. And 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 that linebacking core for Cincinnati really struggled against Cleveland's power, size, and their ability to pull guys around. So I'm very impressed by what I've seen from White Teller, Chris Hubbard, and Kevin Stefanski. Mm-hmm. The two, not worse, but the two, you know, kind of lesser names on that Cleveland offensive line besides Petonio Treader and that first round pick, Jedrick Wills have really played at starting caliber levels in the running game. And I think largely it's because Stefanski is willing to let them combo block, scoop block, pull, uh, do all that stuff that linemen love to do because of the physical nature of the game that it allows them to unlock. They get to really impose their will. And you saw in that, you know, salt away eight-minute drive for Cleveland, Kareem Hunt and Nick Chubb just ripping off 10-yard runs. That's because that offensive line's been doing work for 50 minutes you know what i mean that's that's you want to make an argument for establishing the run that's it right there like that offensive line was just obliterating people off the line of scrimmage you can tell they're having a lot of fun playing out there so i am impressed with the offensive changes that kevin stefanski has already made in a very young season to calibrate what he knows and what he's done to cleveland and it goes back to my initial point which is he came up exclusively through minnesota this is his first experience of taking things that he learned in one organization and trying to apply it to a different organization. Mm-hmm. That, to me, is going to take time. And the fact that we've got uh, an early sign of some adjustment, some shift, some acknowledgement that things have to be different is really, really good news uh, for Stefanski for the Browns. I mean, that O-line was a big area that needed to take a jump up. Uh, certainly Mayfield did as well, but y- you were hoping that Stefanski getting in there was going to be... Um... A nice addition because it was going to boost basically the entire offense in a lot of different ways. Cleveland needed a bounce back. They they needed a bounce back after getting just embarrassed by the Baltimore Ravens, albeit one of the best teams in the NFL, but they weren't supposed to look that bad against them like they did in week one. And so I thought it was good that not only the Browns got off the schneid, but also that you pointed out that, that there are some good things and it's pointing in the right direction. Hopefully Cleveland can continue that trend because they're going to be fun if they continue to stay healthy. It's one of the more uh, more interesting rosters in the NFL when it comes to offensive firepower, but the big boys got to hold up, so it's good to know that they are. I took a look at the Arizona Cardinals-Washington football team, all 22. Didn't really go into it with a certain angle. I wanted to see how Kyler did because I know that he had a big day. People were pumping him up back on Sunday, and let me tell you, man, this kid's good. Kyler's so good. And I know that that's a giant understatement because he went number one overall and he lit the college football world on fire. But the deep ball from Kyler is just so 
nice. He is just so natural of a football player. He sees something deep down the field. He's got the arm. He's got the zip. He's got the placement to get it down and really attack things. Like we we mentioned in the Josh Allen portion of this Watchers Wednesday, the point of, of drafting a quarterback as high as you do with a big arm is because you want to be able to stretch the field as much as possible. You want to tell the defense, you've got to cover this much grass. And when you have a guy that can consistently attack deep down the field, both from his fearless attitude and also from his skill, getting the ball to exactly where it needs to go, that is such a stress on the defense, even if you are not throwing it deep. And so through these two games with the Cardinals being 2-0, and took a look at... Uh, how they did versus Washington, and look, you know, it's it, it, it's not the best coverage unit there in Washington. Troy Apke's got uh, got some things he's got to figure out there at safety, but Kyler was great, both when attacking deep and also when tucking it and running. He had a great day running the ball. He was extremely elusive, and and that's something that when you watch a college football player do a lot of damage with their legs, what's the first thing that a lot of people say, Ben? Like, oh, he can't do it in the NFL. You know, like that mm-hmm. won't hold up. There, he's not going to be able to do that same kind of stuff. Kyler was. Kyler was able to have that kind of a success Sunday. So I wanted to point out that Kyler really is taking that next step. And him and Cliff Kingsbury, the head coach, the offensive guru there, they they seem to be moving up and progressing hand in hand. And that's a dangerous thing for the rest of the league that's got to go up against him, especially with a guy like DeAndre Hopkins now in the mix at receiver to go along with Christian Kirk, Larry Fitzgerald. Uh, But the guy that I really wanted to point out from this game, linebacker Devontre Campbell. He comes over from Atlanta. And I did a big kind of what Isaiah Simmons could mean to this uh, Vance Joseph Arizona Cardinals defense. And I pinpointed that linebacker is probably going to be where they want Simmons to play because last year they were asking Jordan Hicks to try to play a lot more coverage than he was comfortable with, and he just couldn't do it. Whether it was in man coverage versus tight ends or zone over the middle, Jordan Hicks was just getting exposed in coverage in ways that were just detrimental to the team getting off the field, stopping drives, and winning football games. Devondre Campbell, man, was all over the place. And I'll tell you, I was watching a little bit of Isaiah Simmons, too. He's not ready. He ain't ready to contribute. I watched only a couple of his his reps that really caught my eye, and the, the ones that caught my eye were the bad ones. I mean, there was one where he was lined up as the edge who was supposed to go up against the right tackle, and there was a little hesitation, stumble when he was coming out of the gate, and then once he finally got into the contact point with the right tackle, the right tackle punched him and shoved him so hard that Simmons ended flat on his butt for a pass rush rep. And it's just like, he's just clearly not confident in what he's supposed to be doing right now, and he's not ready for it. I think you saw him get, get exposed a little bit by Kyle Shanahan in coverage the week before. Uh, and, and so... The Cardinals have not been able to rely as much on Simmons as I think that they would have liked to out the gate. Thankfully, Campbell's stepping up. He led the team in solo tackles, combined tackles, tackles for loss, and passes defended this past Sunday against Washington. He was all over the field. He was he was like glue on the tight ends that Washington was trying to have both over the middle and to the sideline. I thought he was very aware with everything that was going on when he was allowed to sink back, play in his zone, keep his eye on the quarterback. He was huge towards the success of the Cardinals having a good defensive day and getting out of that getting out of that game with a win. Very impressed by uh, Devondre Campbell. He is a huge addition to that Cardinals defense when a lot of people were expecting Isaiah Simmons was going to come in right away and play that role. I'm telling you, Campbell's playing it, and they needed him too badly. Yeah, it's the uh, Isaiah Simmons conversation is an interesting one to me because, you know, 
when we talked about where does this guy fit, what was the one thing we always said? Like, he got to be everything on that Clemson defense. He got to be Mr. Versatile, be all over the place. But a defense has to be structured such that that is allowed. You can't have a 10-player defense playing the 4-3, you know, like one gab, whatever the philosophy is, and then just have one dude who does everything. It doesn't work like that. And so I think, you know, early struggles for Simmons are probably attributed to the fact that he he can't bring value to the team with his versatility the way he used to do at Clemson. So now he has to bring value to the team doing something, which is like doing, you know, pass is his, his skills a man cover defender, his ability in zone, his ability as a QB spy. He's there's something that. They, they've got to find that role where he's going to be valuable for them in year one as yeah. he settles into a more kind of traditional deployment. Uh, it's a tricky thing to figure out is the moral of the story. And and that defense has got time. Um, but I just wrote about like 2-0 and o teams, contenders, pretenders. And I had six contenders. I had four pretenders. And I had one in-betweener. And that was the Arizona Cardinals because I hate commitment. And <laughs> I wrote that, listen, like... Does Mayor know this? Does yeah, Mayor right. know that they, they, yeah. they hate commitment? <laughs> I read the the offense is right there. The offense, I'm fully in on this offense being a contending offense. The defense clearly isn't at this stage, but it's very young. It's got new players at a lot of levels. Defense tends to get better throughout the year, especially young defenses. And this year, with no training camp, you should project it for pretty much every defense. We've seen offenses really be successful in the first couple weeks of the season. Defense is one that's struggling. So. I think that the Cardinals defense could be a lot better in week 12 than it is in week two. And that might sound intuitive, but I'm saying like noticeably, measurably, significantly different to the point that it makes the Cardinals a contender. That's the hope is just every week they should be watching that Simmons film, watching Buda Baker, figuring out where their pass rush is coming from and saying, what can, what's next thing we try? Let's throw a lot of stuff at the fan here. See what sticks. Lots of the wall. See what sticks. And then, and then try to develop that out. So that when it comes playoff time, we actually have a legit, defense in place well it could hit the fan and then hit the wall you know it's just like right. a, you're right just, the, you, fan, the fan throws it to the wall yeah see what sticks on the wall more speed you know just more speed going up against more the wall speed. so maybe 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 you got a chance there all right we, i want to get to some of the points that you guys reached out to us and, and gave from your own viewings of your teams in the all 22 or the broadcast angle here on watchers wednesday but before i do wanted to make sure that you guys knew that if you are betting on any kind of games, prop bets, player bets, whatever it is, be using my bookie. Ben and I, for tomorrow's episode of the podcast, as we always do, we will go through every single game in the upcoming week of the NFL, and we will give you our picks on the lines. I'm not going to give it away, but your boy had a very strong weekend this past weekend and may have retaken the lead after Ben bested me in you know, week I went one. 12-4 straight up and 6-10 and 10 against the spread. Ooh. Do you mean how freaking furious that makes me? <laughs> why don't you just why don't you just, you know, get better at betting? Why don't you just head yeah, over was, to my wasn't bookie a good and just... NFL week? Actually, I was plus in the NFL week until Monday night football, but it doesn't matter. Raul sent us an audio message, which we are gonna play right now. He has got some thoughts on his Indianapolis Colts. Hi Trevor and Ben is Rahul from the TDM Premium Slack. And here's my insight into a player that caught my eye on film for the Indianapolis Colts. This player is rookie safety out of Utah, Julian Blackman, who filled in for Malik Hooker after he went down with an Achilles injury. Based off watching the film from Sunday, I, what I saw from Blackman's play was very encouraging moving forward. In the run game, he was very solid as he looked to take 
good angles to the ball. And on film, I don't recall him missing a single tackle. And I know that's something that the Colts value a lot from their defensive backs. Against the pass, he showed great movement skills with his ability to move from sideline to sideline, which is very encouraging given that he's just come back from a torn ACL, which he suffered earlier this year. And his willingness to make plays on the ball were on display, with it most, most notably with his pass breakup, which led to an interception by fellow safety Kari Willis. Overall, whilst other Colts rookies are getting more name recognition, like Michael Pittman and Jonathan Taylor, I think that Julian Blackman's first game as a Colt was very promising, and he is certainly someone to keep an eye on with the Colts' defense moving forward. All right, appreciate Raul for sending us that audio file. That was the only one that we got this week, but uh, we have some others that we're going to read out from you guys. But I want to try to, you know, if we get your voice as part of the podcast, I'd love to do that too. If, if you don't want to do that, obviously you don't have to. We'll read off some of your thoughts in the film, but we figured that this would be a really cool way, so we appreciate Raul sending us that. First and foremost, Hat off, RIP, F's in the chat from Malik Hooker. My son, um, not looking good, Ben. In Since 2017, he has now torn his ACL, his meniscus, and now his Achilles. That's... A lot of things. That might be... I had somebody who tweeted at me, and they were like, hey, like, what do you think about if Malik Hooker, like, if the Colts let him go, him potentially moving spots to play for a team that's going to play a little bit more single high because Matt Everplus didn't really play single high early on. Um... My thoughts to that are, in theory, sure. But at this point, I, I don't even know if we're getting the real Malik Hooker that we think that we're getting. Like, he, he might just be a shell of what his athleticism was back three, four years ago when we were really thinking about him as a top-tier NFL prospect. That's just a lot of wear and tear and, and injuries on the body to overcome. And when you play single high, I mean, like, you got to be an athlete. you got to have range. And the reason why I love Tucker so much is because he had that kind of range. Not sure that that's going to be the case after all these injuries, which makes me really sad. But Julian Blackman, uh, he had a lot of fans going into his draft class. Ben, what did you think of Blackman when he was coming along? Yeah, I remember watching Blackman when he played corner in 2018 for Utah and saying, like like the length, love the press. I think that he can be a successful man cover defender. Oof, just wish he had ball skills. And then they're moving him to safety. And it's like, oh, yeah, well, that makes sense. Like, you know, he obviously, like, he he was continuing to grow before he was a corner. He was a little bit grabby. You're going to be able to use his linear, you know, explosiveness, the long speed, nicely a deep safety. Just kind of wish he had ball skills. Uh, He comes out. I think the Colts made him, what, an early third, if memory serves? I I want to say it was like a top 70 pick. Uh, Let's see. Julian Blackman was pick number 85. 85. I was going to say 65. Um, They make in that pick. The Colts have done a nice job in finding these middle round, later round defensive backs. Obviously, Kari Willis, who's a starter for them out of Michigan State, was a safety who, like Blackman, didn't have a ton of like ball production, but was just a really consistent player for for the Spartans. Blackman with the safety corner movement, you know, the the, the multiple positions he'd played in college, had you excited for figuring out what he's going to be at the pros? Well, He's coming off the torn ACL. They barely get to see him in camp. They dress him for the first game. And the second game, he's thrust out there starting because Hooker goes down. And he just flew around to the football. Like, he just looked like he was a five-year vet, right? Mm-hmm. Like uh, Now, the interception, uh, the Cardi Willis interception, where he broke up the pass and then Willis intercepted it, 
Blackman should catch that football. That's like it hit him with both of his hands right in front of his face mask. This is the thing with Blackman is that he's got ball production, but you wish that he were better at catching the ball or playing defensive back. But fortunately, it bounces off his hands and right into Kari Willis. His lap and Willis gets the return. His pass breakup on Irv Smith was a lot more exciting because that's an intermediate crossing route from a tight end. You're in a deep half. You know, you know you're arriving after the football, so you locate the torso, right? You try to get your helmet inside of the catch point. He disrupts that pass, not by getting a hand on the ball, but by delivering a strong hit. And that's, you know, when you talk about a corner to safety transition, you'll have these guys who like playing deep, and they like reading the routes in front of them, but they don't necessarily want to hit because they used to be corners. Blackman is a physical dude. He's very comfortable hitting. He had a tackle on third down as well, where you can tell that he's physically capable of playing safety and being a part of, of the run defense. Because they don't play like you brought up with Hooker, a lot of deep middle, a lot of cover one, cover three. I think that'll be good for Blackman, who doesn't necessarily have the instincts necessary to get on his horse and get to deep outside routes from a single high position. I think that's something that he might get eventually, but I'm not sure he has it yet. But play him in a deep half. He's got the range to be impactful. He's got the physicality to be impactful. He's got route recognition to be impactful. You can rotate him down and he can cover. This is exactly what you were looking for in terms of a guy who can play deep half for you and then come down on the line of scrimmage, and he has man cover skills and man cover background. That's the sort of versatility you're looking for in a third round pick, right? Like in terms of a defensive back to bring off the bench, as they now have to do, he can fill a lot of different roles for you. You can do a lot of different things. Um, so, very solid opening performance for Blackman. Rahul brings up a good point. In terms of teams we should trust, like Steelers drafting wide receivers, man, Colts drafting defensive backs has just been, you know, ignoring Quincy Wilson. Really, really I mean, are, wait, are we are we counting Rocky Sin? Are we giving Rocky Sin like the? I mean, Yasin, but like he was getting better across the course of his first year. I thought Yasin was overdrafted okay. at thirty four. Okay, but I also thought Yasin was going to be a player was going to be better in year two, year three. I mean, this dude played two years of corner. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, you're right. At you're right. Temple, you know what I mean? Yeah. So Yasin's going to be a guy that I he I do the checkup on him later. Okay. All right, that's fair. Uh, Sam said not necessarily a film thing, but super impressed with Jalen Johnson, the corner in Chicago. So far through two games, contributed a lot with some key pass breakups, including the one on the last play of the game versus the Lions in week one. Tough test this weekend coming up against Julio Jones and Calvin Ridley compared to what he has faced so far, but he already looks the part. Jalen Johnson was a guy that I, I was a fan of coming into this draft class. I got to watch him live when I saw Utah play against Washington last year. Man, I'm thinking back to that, and I'm thinking about how like I was traveling because the Bucks were playing in Seattle and I was just like in a different city and a new thing. And after being in quarantine for seven, eight months, it just like feels like a different reality. Like it doesn't even feel like a real thing anymore. I'm remembering the memories of that game, but was super impressed with Jalen Johnson. And even like throughout the year, this is going to be a guy who had that man coverage mentality, wasn't afraid of a guy who was on the other side of the line of scrimmage. And I think that you're seeing that fearlessness early on with him. Now, I, it, he's going to get burned. You know, we're, we're, you're talking about a tough test coming up against Julio and Calvin Ridley. I think that he's, uh, that's, one of the best wide receivers in the game and and a, and a fantastic route runner that he's going up against. So I think he's going to take his lumps this weekend just because of the guys that he's going up against. But it's great to see that he's not backing away from early playing time. And I really didn't think that that would be the case of the player of Johnson's skill set and really of his mental makeup too. And so that's what made me such a big fan of his. Confidence is huge for me when it comes to playing corner. And that was not something that you were going to have to 
get out of Jalen Johnson. You and I have talked about this before. Hey, you'd rather dial a guy down than try to get him to go to a place that he's not comfortable with. You know, like getting him to come out of his shell more than he should or whatever. And I just thought, when I watched Jalen Johnson, this is a guy who's going to play with a ton of confidence at all times. Sure, I mean, it might not be as much as we're seeing at Utah here in his final year of college action when it's his first year in the NFL, but... I agree. He caught my eye a couple of times when I was I was watching that Detroit-Chicago game. I have not put him under the microscope, so I can't speak too much to the technique or the, the one-in-one reps, but it's good to hear that he's been playing well because he's a guy I had some confidence in moving forward. Might have to take an L on Jalen Johnson. We were not. I was not a Jalen Johnson fan. Yeah, we don't, easy with we. Easy with we. Well, yeah, we as in as in you know like the the uh, you know Ben Solak Scouting Incorporated. I'm going yes. take an L. Inc. Yeah, Inc. <laughs> on on Jerry Johnson. LLC. We'll <laughs> I gotta say, I gotta say, man, respect for what Chuck. Like I, uh, uh, I talked about the Bears being my biggest surprise. A ton of respect for Chuck Pagano, man. I mean, like to follow Vic Fangio was rough, and that first year losing to Keem Hicks wasn't necessarily what they wanted. Year two, they're coming out with teeth. Really nice to see. They're aggressive. Love coming out with Chuck teeth. Pagano's I don't know defense, why the man. way the way that you said that, I liked it. You're just coming like, yeah they're, teeth. Co- yeah, they're coming out with teeth. teeth bared, baby. They're just, coming. Play. they're just coming out with teeth. Eric, this is one that was in your wheelhouse because I saw you talking about it on Twitter, Ben. He said, Tom Cable of the, uh, the, the uh, I almost said Oakland Raiders, but I didn't say it. I didn't say Oakland Raiders. I didn't say it. Las Vegas Raiders is living up to his NFL reputation as one of the top O-line coaches compared to how the media portrayed him after his admittedly poor Seattle tenure. Colton Miller progressing into a solid left tackle. Um, a lot of other guys are going from backups to starting right tackles. John Simpson, he said, didn't look out of place uh, when he was hurt. When when Incognito was hurt, he had to come in. All things that were pretty unexpected that has to do with the job that Cable is doing in Vegas. I Dude, I mean, like when I walked out from that Saints game, a lot of people were talking about Drew Brees, Derek Carr, John Gruden. I'm just sitting there watching a good Saints defense line get bullied. And and what's what's important for me in terms of that offensive line is I, obviously you had no Trent Brown and you had Richie Incognito go down during the game. And I mean, was was it was John Simpson the bet like fourth round rookie out of Clemson? Was he Richie Incognito? Absolutely no, not. Right. I'm not arguing that. Was Sam Young Trent Brown? No, he wasn't. I acknowledge that the offensive line wasn't even as good as he could have been. But number one, they still come off the ball with a ton of power. Rodney Hudson looks tremendous, despite the fact that he's getting a little bit long in the tooth. Colton Miller, baby, took us a couple years as we expected, but Colton Miller can play. This is one of the, the better young tackles in the league. We got to have a conversation about that at some point. But then uh, uh, what's also exciting when you look at the Raiders' offensive line and you you widen it to just take a look at the running game as a whole and you see what they're doing with Alec Ingold undrafted fullback out of Wisconsin who was a, a senior bowler under Gruden who I really really liked coming out he took you know he 20 percent of the snaps like they're in 21 personnel 22 personnel a ton and that brings you to the tight ends I mean they've got Darren Wallace basically wide receivers so they've got 26 snaps for Jason Witten 32 snaps for Foster Moreau last week right and they're using these guys wonderfully condensed sets, bunch formations, and then they run off tackle off of it. They're sealing Cameron Jordan down with freaking Brian Edwards, man. Like, that's how you want to design that running game. You buy a block from a wide receiver 
on Cameron Jordan. That's a big end. And that's what allows you to pull Gabe Jackson and Ronnie Hudson and, 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 and John Simpson, get them moving into the second level, get them matched up on linebackers and on corners, and then Josh Jacobs. First guy doesn't take him down. You're lucky if the second guy does. That running game is for real. It's about as good of a running attack, I think, as you're going to see in the league this year. And that's, you know, as we very well know, it's a passing league, passing offense. You want to be successful throwing the football. For as long as Derek Carr refuses to target down the field, despite the fact he's got good <laughs> pass protection, team's going to be bad. Or not, not team's going to be bad. Offense is going to be limited. But that running game is not only going to help them beat a lot of bad teams, it's going to help them keep a lot of good offenses on the field. I'm here to tell you, Kansas City run defense is going to have a long day trying to get the ball back in Patrick Mahomes' hand when they play Las Vegas. Because Vegas is going to come with the intention of giving Mahomes about five drives. You know what I mean? Like That's going to be the goal, sure. is to just eat clock. And they're going to be fine with the 9-7 victory if they get it. You know what I mean? Like That's that's the model they're going after here. And, and I don't know if it's analytically supported or not, but they've got the bodies to do it well. And I'm excited to see what it looks like. Ben versus Derek Carr's mentality to not push the ball down the field despite having the it's arm disgusting. to do so. Is one of my- I feel so bad for Henry Ruggs. We're gonna have, like it's gonna be 2022. You and I are gonna be sitting here talking about how Henry Ruggs' career could have been better if he was drafted anywhere else. Derek Carr is not gonna be the starting quarterback of this team in 2022. Okay. Do you think he is? What if I- they go nine and seven and make the playoffs? I have him down as eight and eight. Yeah, but this is just 2020. So we're talking about two years from now. You got right, you got well, that means you holding to 2021. How old is Derek Carr? How old is he? 20? How old is he? Eight. Derek Carr age. When's his contract 29. Up? When's his contract up? Derek Carr contract. Listen, I've been on the draft a different quarterback I know, since but the 2019 I'm, I'm, NFL draft. I know, but I'm trying to make it tangible out here. Okay, so he is... This year, his cap hits only 7.9. They're obviously not moving on from him this year because he's a starting quarterback. Next year, it goes down to 2.5, and then the year after that, he has no guaranteed money left. You're talking about dead cap? Yeah, yeah, like dead cap. Oh, right. yeah, he's cuttable. Right. you got to cut him. Right. If you go 9-7, you're not cutting your starting quarterback. No, 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 you're right, you're right, you're right. I, I would think 2022 probably after this start that we're watching. I would, I don't know, I would say that Derek Carr is not going to be the quarterback of the I'm Raiders. Just saying, in free my boy Henry Ruggs, free my boy Brian Edwards, free my boy Darren. Actually, Darren Waller gets a lot of uh, volume. Never mind. Free my boy yeah, Henry what, Ruggs. And hold Brian up, Edwards. hold up. How many targets did Darren Waller get last week? Eighteen, Trevor. There's no way. No, it's not. I didn't get eighteen. He got like eleven though. Hold on, I'm looking. Hold on, I'm trying to look. Wait, I'm trying to find it. Oh yeah, they played on Monday night. Uh, Darren Waller, sixteen. Ben. No, he got sixteen targets. I was kidding. <laughs> no, you weren't. What did he get the week before? I'm... What did he get the week before? Sixteen. Oh, he had eight Why the week before. Two. Okay, so the rest of the team had eighteen targets. Okay, and he had sixteen targets. All right, fifty percent of the targets, obviously Derek for a talent Carr, like Darren Derek Waller. Carr, right. I saw a stat that like he's one of like he's one of a very uh, small uh, uh, group of quarterbacks to target eleven players across the course of a game, and. He uh, did it in one of the in the fourth fastest pace. Like he he was the fourth quickest in terms of like the time of the game in which he targeted his eleventh player. What's crazy is, oh, anyway, this is nuts. Every single target, not to Darren Waller, was okay. Every single target should not have to gone Darren, to Darren Waller. 
No, 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 no. no he was kidding. two for two throwing to Edwards, three for three for Renfro, one for one to Moreau, one for one to Aguilar, three for three for Jacobs, one for one for Zay Jones, one for one for Devontae Booker, two for two for Alec Engold, one for one for Jason Witten. He was three targets and one reception for Henry Ruggs. This is the guy they drafted with the 11th overall pick. He's the only one he can't get the ball to. Oh, my gosh. Uh, we're moving on. Michael said that I've watched Makai Becton both of his games on all 22, and he is legit a top 10 left tackle in the league right oh, now. Wow. He said, I hate the Jets. I'm a Pats fan. I have I no bias at all. Moves his feet so well in pass protection. Dominated Nick Bosa on the reps where they went up against each other and completely moves dudes in the running game. Rookie of the year so far for me. When's the last time an offensive tackle has ever won rookie of the year? Never. Right? Is, is that a legit never, or did you look it up? All right. When I so when I looked at it before the podcast, I got to like Barry Sanders in 1990, and I I wasn't there was no offensive lineman who won it. So in the last like 30 years, and then we started to get to a bunch of names I didn't recognize. Um, I wonder Wikipedia probably has the the actual positions. I was looking on PFR, but I'm interested in this top 10 left tackle claim. Dude, I, I, I would not be ready to say that he is a top ten left tackle two weeks okay. into his NFL career. However, I have watched multiple no, an offensive lineman has never won it in the history of the award. Okay, go ahead. I have watched multiple clips on the timeline of Makai Becton looking very well, and there are a lot of people that I know that follow the Jets. Why am I? Why am I friends with so many people who follow the Jets? God, I feel so bad for them. I just want to hug all of them. Um, who have who have echoed Michael's sentiment that but Makai Becton's the real deal. So I haven't taken, again, like this is a guy who I haven't had the time to really put under the microscope yet, but everything that I have heard about Makai Becton is that there's no, there's no buyer's remorse at all about this guy. It, he was not just a large player in college football who overpowered people at the college level and then got lost in the NFL. Like, no, he's still doing that and moving very well for a guy his size at the NFL level. Right, and I mean, like, in terms of things that translate out in the trenches, being gigantic and extremely mobile is like, you know, it's a good look. Highest um, graded, okay. o- highest graded offensive rookies through week two per PFF. Makai Becton, number one, seventy nine point seventy nine point seven. Who's the rest of the list? Just curious. Uh, I only have the top four here. Michael Onwenu is 70, nice. seventy eight. Oh Damian Lewis is seventy seven point nine, and Tristan yeah. Works. Tristan Wirfs is 76.4. Hey, that's a brand list right there. Gang! Okay. Left tackles. Holy cow. Hold on. Hold on. I'm watching this clip that Jeff Schwartz put up of Makai Becton. And Nick, there are a couple reps here where, like, Nick Bosa legit beats him on the first punch or on the first move. And Makai is quick enough and big enough to recover and stay in front of Bosa. That people don't do that. Damn. Okay, all right, all right. Top 10 left tackles. So is he better than, like, Bakhtiari? No. No, no. Braun Armstead? No. No. Tyron Smith? No. No. Dwayne Brown? No. Laramie Tunsil? No. No. That's five. Whitworth? Rams? Probably not. Six? Mm, no, I, I'd say that, yeah, I'd probably still give it to Whitworth just because, obviously, Whitworth's got a ton okay. of experience, and he's really good. Ronnie so. Stanley? Seven. Okay. I I mean, like, I, I just made the claim about Colton Miller. So, even if you give him eight there, 
guys I have, like, I mean, like, yeah, now we start to get into it. Nate Solder, Taylor Decker, Taylor Luan, Anthony Costanzo. Probably Costanzo's yeah, up there. Yeah, no, I, t- I put Costanzo in there. Deion Dawkins, DJ Humphreys, Jake Matthews, Donovan Smith, uh, Eric Fisher, Charles Leno Jr., George Fant, I mean, which you, is also you, on the Jets. You could, you, um, could, you, you could make an argument that, uh, now again, like, I haven't seen Alejandro everything on the but... The Steelers probably deserves a mention here, but yeah, like, if we're talking exclusively Dude, less tackles. Kid can Cam Robinson, move Jaguars, his feet. Isaiah Wynn, Patriots. Cow. This is good. No, he's he's been phenomenal. I'm I'm just looking at clips on the timeline that people have posted. These are I would awesome. Say, reps. I would say he is fringe top ten. I will give you that. Yeah. Damn. Congrats. Good stuff. Thank you for pointing that out, Michael. Because now we get to uh, we we've been able to marvel about uh, Makai Beckton a little bit more. All right, last one. Last one here. This is from Jack. He said, I have a take on a player. My current top five running backs for the 2021 NFL draft are Etn, Journey Brown, Kenny Gainwell, Muhammad Ibrahim, and Najee Harris. Says you may oh, wow. know you may notice that Najee Harris is fifth. This has become a debate, a debated point among my co-slack conspirators in our daily discussion. I think Najee Harris is an awesome player, but his vision is too inconsistent. I think that when you pick a guy that high, you have to know what he can do. You you want to know that he can do his typical job well, and then build on that for being what makes him special. Najee is special, but in my opinion, his vision and his running back decisions lack consistently. And I don't think I can say that he does his job typically well enough above the other guys. Side note, I think Harris could be good enough to play in the NFL in a rotation. I'd love to have him on my Eagles, he says. The draft is a compliment to Miles Sanders. Would love to hear you guys' thoughts. Yeah, wouldn't well, it be nice for the Eagles to have a back who's got some size to him? I agree. Harris can pass protection as well. Um, so he had Etienne, Hubbard, Gainwell, and Muhammad Ibrahim above no, Harris? He, no, he didn't have Hubbard. He had Etienne, Journey Brown, Kenny Gainwell, Muhammad Ibrahim, and then Najee Harris. Okay. Um, Harris' decision-making that poor? I don't know if it's that poor. I, I certainly, you know, like yeah. after looking at him as summer scouting, I had Najee Harris higher. I have Najee Harris as three. I think he had him as my RB3. I'd pick Najee Harris over guys like Ibrahim and Kenny Gainwell, at least from yeah, what yeah. I what I had seen. Right. I um I I was about to say I haven't seen Najee Harris this year, and then I remember Najee Harris doesn't play football this year. Um but plays this weekend, not- baby, SEC football. Alright, go ahead. Okay, having not Watch Najee Harris since our, our summer scouting series, right? Yeah, I came away generally unconcerned about vision and decision making process. Um, big, you know, backs have play styles, which are usually informed by their athletic ability. Harris, as a, you know, one direction, kind of one speed, physical bruiser sort of a guy, is not going to spend a long time behind the line of scrimmage, setting up blocks, trying to, you know, open up more space. That's not ever going to be the way he wins. So he does play with urgency. I don't think that to me that translates to poor vision. Uh, certainly you could argue there are times where like, he's probably hammering himself into a hole when there was a better option that developed late. But that's just going to be tough for a player of his athletic profile to have that play style. That, that That's that's my read on kind of how you would look at a, a, a player like Harris and his decision-making given his frame. Yeah. Um, I'm not as low on his RB vision. And yeah. maybe that's just a... I was having a lot of faith in the upcoming season for some of these guys because, like, Journey Brown was my RB2, you know, and I would I would certainly admit that Journey Brown still needs uh, a lot more snaps under his belt to get the proper vision and decision-making down. So 
it could just be a matter of Jack putting a lot more stock into what Najee Harris is today as opposed to maybe me putting stock into what Najee Harris can be on draft day and where I see him progressing in that regard. I'm not going to fight him on that RB vision is a really important thing. You know, Trent Richardson is the prime example. You can be as physically gifted as you want to be, but if you can't see the giant hole right in front of you or if you can't follow your blockers or if you can't understand blocking concepts, how the defense is going to flow, all that kinds of stuff, you'll never be the playmaker that your physical talents bill you to be. And I, just, I, you know, I always think that that's uh, something that you've got to keep in mind. So interesting th- thoughts on Harris there. We're a little bit higher on him, but interesting thoughts to hear from Jack as an outsider. Um, I didn't mean to say outsider. He's now I of the podcast, but you know what I mean. Just outside of the thoughts of myself and Ben, which you guys uh, hear probably way too often. There we go. That was the first Watchers Wednesday. That was a lot of fun. I had a good time really getting into the nitty gritty of some of those guys in the NFL. And then I had a great time hearing from you guys too. We're going to do this every single Wednesday. So as you are watching football, whether it's Thursday night, Sunday night, or Monday night, if you see a player or a player of performance that you love, remember it. Hit me up on Twitter, at Tampa Bay Trey. You can hit up Ben as well, at Benjamin Solak. Um, You can hit me up on Instagram, at MT underscore Trevorist. Or if you are in the premium Slack, just give me a private DM message so I don't lose it because y'all talk so much football that I feel like (laughs) I'd lose it if you guys sent that in there. So just send me an individual message so we can make sure that we're going to get it on the Wednesday show. Uh, I enjoyed this format. If you guys liked it as well, make sure to reach out and tell us because this show is obviously uh, uh, for you guys. Well, just kidding. It's for the good people in Argentina who have us as the 28th highest football show in the country. You know, not to brag, but uh, we're bragging. Tomorrow, top thirty, Argentina. Yes, <laughs> noted. Noted top thirty podcast. In, in, in Buenos Aires was good. <laughs> Tomorrow, Ben's got to climb out of the hole a little bit and start picking some games a little bit better because I three oh took goodness. the lead going into Thursday. We got another week of of NFL games that we are previewing with a little bit of a betting angle. That's on tomorrow's podcast. Until then, you guys keep it locked right here on Locked On NFL Draft.